The typical leader who has all the degrees and all the credentials tends to have a bigger ego and less humility. Where me, oh my God, I've made more mistakes than, than I mean, it's crazy. But each one of them allowed me to grow my humility. To know that, listen, I'm a, I'm a step away or a word away from saying the wrong thing all the time. And it gives you that basis to have real conversations with people to listen because you know you don't know. You're listening to episode 39 of the Happy Space podcast. And today we explore why Rick Brennan attributes his success to being an atypical, undiagnosed, neurodivergent leader. Welcome to the Happy Space Podcast, where productivity meets inclusivity, and everyone gets things done. Hello, I'm Claire Kumar, highly sensitive executive coach, speaker, and your host. Studies show that diversity leads to better business outcomes. So doesn't it make sense to invite everyone's richest contribution? Yet too many people are invited to burn out or opt out, and we are squandering talent. On this show, we'll explore a two-part solution. Part one, cultivating sustainable performance, the individual design of work and life to preserve our energy so we can keep contributing. And two, designing inclusive performance, the design of spaces, cultures, products, and services which invite the richest participation. I hope you enjoy these conversations and find inspiration and encouragement for everyone deserves a happy space. Today's conversation is with someone who calls himself the atypical leader and who authored a book and hosts a podcast of the same name. Rick Brennan was a very successful senior leader in the pharmaceutical industry, and he did things quite differently than the other leaders around him. His cognitive challenges meant that he had to find unconventional ways to get things done, but did he ever? Today, Rick is a champion for the undiagnosed neurodivergent and encourages organization to make room for people who think differently. As a highly sensitive person, I was enthused by Rick's mission and was really surprised to discover that Rick hadn't yet heard of the temperament trait. I have a feeling that Rick might identify with some parts of the trait as well. We explore what made Rick really successful in the corporate world, ideas for building team trust, and the unexpected sign that told Rick that he really had a fully aligned team behind him. Enjoy meeting Rick, who joins us today from his warm home in sunny Costa Rica. So, hey, Rick, can you tell me a little bit more about what brought you to write the atypical leader, and a little bit about your journey. Well, that's an interesting story because uh, I had, when I started writing the book, I had really no intention of writing a book that had anything to do with neurodiversity. And I would say that I had had no idea what neurodiversity meant. It was just sitting around a campfire one day and my, I'm telling some stories and a few lies. And my buddy said, you know, Rick, you got to write some of these stories down. Because, you know, I've been in the corporate world. I've had the opportunity to travel and go places and meet all kinds of people and do some foolish things. And I said, you know, I'm going to write some of these stories down. And one thing, you know, led to another. And, 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 and this book started to evolve. And as I talked to other people to clarify stories and situations, and I started to think, like, why did I do the things that I did? What were the strengths I had? What were the weaknesses I had? 
And all of a sudden, it started to evolve into this, this discussion on neurodiversity. Frankly, my uh, former VP of, of HR called me because I had some test readers because the last thing I am is a writer. I struggle so hard with writing and reading and those type of things. The last thing I thought I'd ever do is write a book. Hmm. And uh, so I had some test reader who wanted was a, is now a global senior VP of HR for a pharmaceutical company. She, you know, she got back, Rick loved the book, but you know, this is all about neurodiversity. And I said, what are you talking about? What's that? And really that was my world. The content of the book was all about that, but I didn't understand that terminology. Uh-huh. So and when was this? Writing, pardon? When was this? This was probably, I was probably writing the book. The book took me five years. I was probably writing the I was probably into the third or fourth year of the book. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And now the content was all there. It was just wasn't framed from that angle. And what I started to understand is one thing is neurodiversity and why I coined the phrase atypical was it's really us undiagnosed. I didn't even know. I mean, I had been diagnosed with cognitive dysfunction and dyslexia Mm -hmm. earlier in my life, but I would learn I had so many other neurological sort of things happening and conditions that I was dealing with Mm -hmm. that all caused me to develop skills. And what I learned from the book and dealing with my teams was those skills, I mean, you know, I became good with people because I wasn't good with the other stuff. And I needed to be able to delegate. I needed to be able to communicate effectively. I had to do those sorts of things. And it was almost my neurodiverse dealing with my limitations that gave me the skills to do those type of things. Mm. Is there something to do with your personality there too and an innate drive that made you sort of wade through some discomfort potentially to build skills that maybe weren't there? Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, I'm certainly was in the early years, a rough and gruff type of a manager, uh, finding my way, uh, making lots and lots of mistakes, but luckily enough to find good friends and colleagues who would help me sort of push me in the right direction. You know, Rick, that's really not the right approach. This is the right approach. And even being as stubborn as I was, they approached in a way that I could understand that that I could I could I could go with. And now I and over time and over time I learned and I learned and I learned. Mm-hmm. And I started to evolve into the leader I would eventually become. So you're crediting the people you surrounded yourself with um to a large oh, degree yes. in that. Oh, hundred percent. And what do you think it was about them that, you know, in made this wonderful invitation to you that you could respond to so well? What was it about the way they were with you? They were real. I think it has a lot to do with the people that I chose to be my friend. I think I was attracted to people that were like me because I was always a fun guy. I was always the partier. I was also and I was attracted to those guys. So that that brought the bond, but they at the same time were different than me. They didn't have the same neurological issues that I had. And mm-hmm. they and because of the fun we had and the relationships we built, I learned to trust their opinions. Yeah. And that trust and their opinions, and certainly in the early stages, were absolutely critical to me, you know, learning to contain my ADHD and learning to to go in certain directions, learning to believe in what I was good at. Because there was so much I wasn't good at. It's it's interesting you say that. So can you give me an example of what contain your ADHD means? Well, I'm 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 I can be I can be a piece of work to handle. I certainly over time have 
have calmed it down. Uh, but, you know, I, I, yeah, I was, uh, how do you describe that? I was a ball of fire, inappropriate, uh, self-centered, all those type of things. It was Rick they liked too, mm-hmm. you know, where they wanted to, they were helping me. They weren't attacking me. They were in my camp and I knew they were in my camp. So having that trust behind their comments is what really allowed me to grow. And I think that's that was really the key thing. I trusted them and their opinions. And that allowed me to, to just say, okay, no one's attacking you, Rick. Just shut up and listen. And over time, and it was certainly over time, <laughs> this wasn't a snap of, yeah. of, a, of a switch. Well, and it's interesting because what I'm hearing in there was you perceived the love and the caring in the messaging. And, and you also had to decipher where is, you know, what's coming out of me that I don't want to throttle down on that is really some of my super skill and where does it make sense or could it be beneficial to? And there's some discernment on your part in that. But also on their part, because they like the Rick, like yeah. I'm fun to hang with. Not so <laughs> much anymore. I got old and I got a little boring, but back in the day I was fun to hang with. So people like that. But at the same time, Rick, we love you. We love hanging with you. But this stuff is just a little too much. You need to bring it down here. You need to kind of go with that. It was their trust, their approach with me that really developed my approach with my team in the future. Mm, that it all came about that. With trust and love and appreciation. So because you had lived it, you knew then that you want to embody that in the development of the team who was working with you. Right. Because it was working. I'm being successful. You know, so it, why why wouldn't you run with it? And that's what I did. I just, I learned to go with what worked for me, regardless of what everyone else was telling me in the corporate world. No, this is what an executive looks like. And this is what an executive acts like. But I didn't have any of those skills. I wasn't analytical like that. I wouldn't have that super IQ intelligence. I wasn't smooth at a podium. I didn't have those type of things. But you were a firecracker. <laughs> I was a firecracker. Yeah. So an idea person, expressive. Like, tell me more about some of what made you really shine. Uh, what did you shine? Certainly out of the box. Mm-hmm. I think that I, I was the develop. I've developed just like I said how people. I trusted people, and and that became my core competency. That I had the ability because I really was trustworthy. That I would not, and you know what it's like. You're in the corporate world, and you know the the mucky mucks say, "Well, this is what we've got to do, and this is how we've got to handle it." And a lot of times, that puts you on the other side of the people you told, "Oh, you can trust me." Mm-hmm. And I would, I would fight the system, and I would not allow that to happen. And I would be it manipulate, be it bob and weave, be it whatever, but I would never give up that trust that people had in me. The whole pile of integrity you're talking about. Well, you, you know, from the people I was dealing with, they would see it as integrity. The people that I was not blindly obeying, obe- uh, obeying would see it a different way, wouldn't they? That's correct. Yeah. How would they just how would they have described you? Very competent, unruly, undisciplined, undisciplined, though, in uh, they knew they knew my style worked, but inconvenient. That's the best word. I was inconvenient. Because I would not follow that. But I'm being so successful. My stores in those early days are doing so well that it's, how do you tell them to stop? They couldn't argue with success. No, so and those other friends, 
Yeah, and those other friends that I had were also in the background saying, what, why are you bothering Rick? Look at the success, leave him alone. So I had that community who was shoring up my abilities and I was having the success. I was shoring up, you yeah. know, kind of leave Rick alone, let him do his thing. Well, I'm just going to celebrate here for a minute that they were saying leave alone someone who was successful and leading with empathy because a lot of times you'll leave a leader alone who's a complete tyrant and you'll say, overlook the transgressions and the abusive behavior because they're hitting their numbers. And right. I'm like, that's that's not good enough. That's no, we need to actually have um, a recognition of the how. And in this case, what's interesting is the how is not the typical, to use your word, um, way things are done, but it's it is super successful. So let's come back to that word uh, typical. Uh, because I've used it before, I've used it as neuroatypical. So coming back to the word atypical and how you land on, on it, I landed on, on it as well, but with the neuro prefix, so neuroatypical. Uh, right. Some people I've learned don't, don't like the word neurodivergent, but let's talk about how you came up with this atypical leader and realized it was about neurodiversity. And tell me now how you came to realize you wanted to amplify this in the context with the book, this message around neurodiversity and atypicality, if you will. Today's episode of the Happy Space podcast is sponsored by ClaireKumar.com. With sensitivity, curiosity, and courage, I serve three groups asking the tough questions that lead to meaningful answers. Number one, I coach ambitious leaders to design for well-being and achieve next level work-life integration. Number two, I mic drop thought bombs, that's bombs as in B-A-L-M-S, in keynotes and workshops, helping organizations achieve the business imperative that is inclusivity. And three, I collaborate with brands concerned with respect for well-being on product design, marketing, and PR. If any of this piqued your interest, come find me at clairekumar.com. I'd love to speak with you. Designing inclusive performance together will lead to the richest results. Well, the thing that I, I really found, and the more people I talked to and the more I got into the book was, and the reason I used the word atypical, because I saw that it was undiagnosed. If you could wear a badge and it said, I have dyslexia or I'm neurodiverse, and people would respect that, mm -hmm. most, most people, and they would give you a break. But the problem with us undiagnosed neurodiversity, we don't have that label. Even when companies talk about, oh, we're going to hire neurodiverse, they're talking about the diagnosed. I think, well, the more people I talk to, I swear it's 50% of the people out there that have something that makes them different and odd. But we've been, we've been taught to almost suppress that, to be typical, because that's how you get ahead. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting because I, I've looked at this too, and I think, there are challenges with even getting a diagnosis and and some people will have a challenge with the whole concept that this is a disorder and i talk about diagnosis diagnosis is a privilege you know it's right. right and so i was mentioning before we started recording that i'm a highly sensitive person and that temperament is considered a normal yet atypical temperament trait being that it's about 1 in 5 maybe slightly more 
people that uh, have this extra um, deep sensory perceptions, sensitivity to subtle stimulation, high empathy, emotional responsiveness, you might identify with that, and um, really, really deep, deep, deep processing, high creativity, for example. Um, that's not, none of that is diagnosed. Yet in the world that we live in, it can be often designed to be ultimately too exhausting for someone who is very, very susceptible to sensory overwhelm. I've been looking at this conversation saying, how do we get to be part of being better understood in the workplace? And through that understanding, receiving the accommodations potentially, or being able to have the conditions of work which invite our greatest performance. Right. And without a diagnosis in a lot of organizations, which is really the medical model of disability or challenge, it's not saying, you know, what, hey, Rick, what would what would be great for you and your most productive? What would be ideal for you? It's please show me your diagnosis and then we can then we can tick some boxes and offer you X, Y and Z. But, you know, I, I, I kind of take that to an example I've used in some talks I've given. It's the same. What we don't want to happen is the same thing that's happened with diversity. So you're, you know, diversity has been around forever, mm -hmm. right? You want to hire people of color, sexual orientation, whatever it might be. And, uh, but I've been in the boardrooms when I've seen this happen. And it really is check the box. Because mm. when I hire that, I don't know, black gay woman, I still want that person who's typical, thinks in a typical manner. I still want them to be the same as me. Mm. Which really negates the real... The real power of diversity is that I want people to reflect different points of view, not people who came from that like black gay woman who came from Harvard, who really, you know, thinks the same way as the typical thinkers. And that's what we can't allow happen or we have to work not to let happen is, OK, let's get some diagnosed neurodiverse people into the company. We'll put them over in the cubicle. We'll let them do what we think they're good at. We really miss the point because I believe that people like me that are atypical, I'm more suited for a leadership position than anybody with all the degrees in the world because I've had to overcome. I've had to work with people. I've had to bob and weave. I've had to overcome the same struggles that they typically have had to overcome. So our dialogue is much different than a typical executive dialoguing with their team. They just come from a whole different point of view. Yeah, yeah. Compared to someone who's come through a traditional path and the privilege of being typical potentially is maybe is Absolutely. maybe way to describe it. I'm curious now, as you enter this conversation, how are you finding people receive the ideas you've written about in the book and and what you're championing here is that, you know, we need to think a bit more broadly and and bring neurodiverse people, neurodiversity, I should say, and atypical people into the organizations in a more robust way. The best response I've had, and I've had it on a number of occasions, is you're starting to allow me to see what I always thought was my disability, my limitation, whatever word you want to put to it, as a negative. And mm -hmm. now I'm starting to understand that it's really a positive. We just had a, we just taped a podcast with someone who is, is, is OCD to the extreme. Mm -hmm. But she's managed to turn that into, I mean, I've never seen anyone with this level of organizational expertise. She's taken that 
so-called disability or limitation, and then turned it into a skill that few people in the world ever have. And her comment was, it's so nice to finally see it as a positive and not as something I'm trying to overcome. And I think that's the key is that we all have to find that niche, those things that we're good at. Listen, I couldn't be an engineer. I don't have that skill set. My bridge would fall down. I could just, it just wouldn't work. I can't be that. But what I can do based on my experiences is be an excellent leader. Understand. So you're, people. you're a relationship engineer. Oh, good. Um, can I steal that? That was good. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. When when you talk about the pride and joy in reflecting on your relationships and the strength there and the trust base, I just thought relationship engineer right there. It's yeah, yeah, absolutely. And isn't it fun? I mean, to be working with a bunch of people who enjoy coming to work every day, who are all on the same page, who are all motivated. I mean, what a wonderful experience. And I've been lucky to have lived that a number of times. So I'd love to hear from you some of what you've done to really help bring teams together. And I'll give you a little bit about my lens on it right now. I've really noticed this incredible, I'm calling it a stalemate. We have this tug of war between a lot of leaders and employees and leaders are wanting to have, there's a few things at play. There's a lack of trust, lack of control, there's also, I think, a need for greater convenience and ease on the leader's part to work with their team. And it just is easier if you can walk into your office and just know where someone is. And then we've got people who have found new ways of working that really suit them better. And they're just like, no, I don't see the point of coming in for a day of Zoom meetings, and which is a valid point. But there are reasons to come together. And I'm looking to work with leaders and their teams on really helping them see each other with empathy look at this common objective and figure out how are we going to work together to get there? I'm interested in your wisdom and things that you can impart for leaders who are thinking, yeah, I want the same thing. I want my team to be uh, everyone paddling in the same direction rather than we're, we're trying to split the boat. Right. But I think, you, I think you got to take a few steps back from there. And, and the way I would look at it is, uh -huh. is the foundation built, you know, do, am I working with people in an environment where we trust each other, where it's, it's fun to come to work, where there's respect, where there's communication, where there's sorts of things. And clearly, even when you talk about my team, who's your team? Mm -hmm. Because as, as an executive, my executive group would argue, we're your team. They would say the people you are that report to you aren't really your team. They are. Well, I don't buy that into that for one second. The people who report to me are my team. Mm -hmm. And I'm very clear on that. And listen, I'm here to support the company, the corporation, and the executive group. But let's be clear. This is my team. And this is where my loyalty go. This is why you pay me to drive this team forward. And just that in itself, and I think in a lot of executives, that's back and forth. Depends on the pressure. Depends on the time of the year, where the budgets are, where performance is. That can slide back and forth. And sometimes there's no doubt it's a balancing act. But you've got to be clear that this is my team. And when you do that, then I think you can develop trust. You can develop respect. You can develop that thing where I, I call it where fun and hard work coexist together. Yeah. If you enjoy coming to work, it's fun to come to work. Tell me a little bit now that the climate's changed, though, and people are like, I ain't coming to work. I'm not coming into the office. And we're, we don't have maybe that foundation that would be ideally in place. And we've got to figure out how to rebuild it. We've got people that have been onboarded that haven't met anybody in person yet. The first thing is an open dialogue. Like, okay, put it right on the table. Mm -hmm. There's great value in people coming together. 
working together, having fun together. I mean, I'm sure there's places, even though I could work from home, I enjoy coming to work. I love being with my team and there's value in that. So an open dialogue, I get it. You people want to work from home. Okay. So how do we stimulate that? Is it digital or online meetings? Is it that come into the office on X days and do this? I don't know the answer to that, but I know that we have to find a solution to that because there's great value in in knowing each other, building relationships. I mean, let's face it. If you want to really be a high performance team, you really have to know those people you're working with. You really have to develop relationships. I love everything you're saying there because that's exactly what I'm building now. And I've built a profile that helps people articulate what invites their best performance. It's called your, the happy space work style profile. You can do it in five to 10 minutes, but it prompts you to express what, what you really need to do your best work. And then there's a process where I work with a leader and their immediate team, because I want it to be a small conversation right, between right. those people. And the leader supported in one-on-one conversation with the coach. And then the team is facilitated in a group discussion to start to understand each other first and see each other with empathy and understand the needs that each person has to do their best work, including the leader. And then we look at the tasks and we go through a process to design work together with an understanding fully of that person and what their needs are, who are their dependents are, what their what their great strengths are and what their challenges are. So it, it's it's opening up the conversation. The critical piece though is trust. It is, it is. And the manager, the people have to trust that manager has their back that it's not just verbiage I'm being thrown, that there's a real intent to do what we're talking about. And everybody in a meeting does that. They're excited, they're in a meeting, but they go back to work, they go back to the pressures, and that's where the fundamental values come to the surface. Mm -hmm. Are you trustworthy? Are you loyal? Are you all those type of things? Because at the end of the day, people know you can't fool, you can only fool them for a little while. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it's gonna be trusted in action. It's going to speak to all, all the words Absolutely. that are that are um, underneath all of that. But yeah, yeah your, your comment that we need open dialogue, I absolutely agree. And we need to make time for it. Um, I'm going to ask you, when you were building relationship, how did you weave it in? Because I think our connection has to be woven into how we work. It's not a layer we can just stick on top of everything. It's how we do 100%. everything. 100%. Can you give some examples of just how you wove this ability to build relationship into, like what are some of the things you would do? Well, I'm straightforward and I'm, I like, I, I say honest, but now I mean honest in a different way. I mean, I'm straightforward and I'm gonna tell you what I like and I don't like, uh-huh. but because you trust me, it's yeah. okay. It's yeah. like family, we can have an argument. I still love you at the end of the day, but we don't always have to agree, but we need to come to terms with something that we can both agree to. Uh-huh. So that's the first critical piece. But I forget what you asked me. So that's, that's my that's my my neurodiversity charging in there. I forget. I forget. No problem. Well, so with the strength of building relationship, a lot of people think it's a layer to add on, and I believe right. it's it's how you do everything. So what would it look like? Yeah. So it is about the it's it's building it's honesty, it's straightforwardness, it's um, you know. I think you've got to be real. I mean, you've got, as, as an executive, I always saw myself as just, I just had a different job in the team. 
I wasn't higher or lower than anybody. It was just I had a different job yeah. is to make sure you guys do your job and you're organized and that sort of stuff. And I think that makes it real, too, and it allows us to have conversation. They're not arguing with the senior VP of something. They're arguing with Rick. So I'm hearing humility and not the typical ego you would anticipate with some yeah. senior leaders. And you know what? That goes back to what we talked about earlier. The typical leader who has all the degrees and all the credentials tends to have a bigger ego and less humility. Where me, oh my God, I've made more mistakes than, than I mean, it's crazy. But each one of them allowed me to grow my humility. To know that, listen, I'm a, I'm a step away or a word away from saying the wrong thing all the time. Mm -hmm. And and it gives you that basis to have real conversations with people to listen because you know you don't know you don't, you know what you know and you know what you know at that minute in time and then who knows right so i've been giving leadership workshops all through the pandemic and continue to and one of the things i've been talking about that would help leaders build this rapport and create that safe space for people to share their mistakes is to talk about their own mistakes and and I will go through and I will say, so do you have a do you have a mistake story? Is there something that you can share? And oh, crickets, there's a real reluctance in our in our culture to be saying, oh, I've screwed up, I made mistakes. And here you are, you just said, oh, I made more mistakes. <laughs> you know, was that something that you talked about with your team? All the time. I mean, I don't know. I always found. I can just can I give you a little example? Can I give you a tale? Take a few minutes, but. So this is way back in my career and my my customer service group is they're talking with a customer and the customer wants this situation solved. And they come up to me and they said, Rick, the customer wants this, this, this. And I said, we're not doing that. I don't care if the Pope calls. We're not doing that. So one thing led to another and they had to finally give in to the customer. They had to ask me and I said, OK, I guess we got to do it. But a couple of days later, the whole staff in the building showed up to present me with a cardboard Pope hat to say, here you big dummy, yeah. the Pope called, here's your hat. But to me, big mistake, look silly, but man, did that tell me we had arrived as a team. When they were able to come to the boss's office and present me a Pope hat was like the best moment ever. We're here. We love one another. Love it. I love it. Um, it's it's that candor that you're talking about, this right. ability to speak truth and speak freely and not be taking offense to it and not getting defensive because there's that underlying uh, underlying layer of trust. Yeah, without that, none of that would happen. None of that would happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and some people would sit in meetings sometimes with me and my team and go, oh, my God, I can't believe... Rick talks to them. I can't believe they said that to Rick. But we're like, this is just Monday. This is just this is just a normal Monday for us. We're being candid and we're staying yes. forward. But we're yeah. going to make it. When we walk out of that room, we will be united. We will be heading in the right same direction. So for a leader that doesn't have this luxury of already having established trust and with a population that is perhaps now more difficult to invite to be trusting, in our in different climates of divisiveness and so on, where would you encourage someone to start? How would you how would you encourage a leader to invite that trust? Everyone working remote is a challenge. And how do you develop those relationships? 
I wish I had the answer to that, but that would be key. You have to develop relationships. People can't trust you because they've seen you over the web a few times. You've had a few digital calls. You've had whatever. That's just not going to work. So I don't know that I have an answer. I wish I did. I wish I was smart enough to have an answer for that right now. But it, it certainly, I always go back to the basics of everything. So if you were new, if you're a new leader, you want to be a leader today, you're a manager and you want to grow your leadership skills, it's all going to be about core values. Do people trust you? Do people like you? And like you for the right reasons, not like you because you're all happy and you're good in that moment, but like you because you're consistent, you're thoughtful, you're you're hardworking, you like to have fun, uh, you're trustworthy, all those type of things. And, and that's what you've got to strive for. And if you do that, people will start to cling to you. The one thing we haven't talked about, and I'm a big believer with all of that, the next step to building a team is all around organization. No matter how wonderful you are, how charismatic you think you are, if your yeah. team doesn't know where they're heading or what they're accountable for, all of that other stuff doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's nice, but you'll never become a high-performance team. You yeah. have to have your act together. You have to know where you're going, and everybody needs to know equally. So they need to know what their part is in it. So that Absolutely. they can fulfill those obligations. And do you think that's also harder now that work is done remotely? No, I don't think so. I think there's some basic principles that we can work on. First of all, there's only so many hours in a, in a day and in a week. And how do you make most productive work of those hours? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we get the countless emails and the countless conference calls and all this stuff. But there's no, is there any value to this? And it's hard when you're at a lower level to say, no, I'm not going to attend that conference call or I'm not going to answer those emails but in reality they're chewing up needless time and I was very clear as an executive with my group mm. okay first of all let's be honest I read fully read 10% of my emails mm. oh my god what do you mean well I don't have time to read stuff that's about another department and what they're doing and all this crazy stuff and and, and a key, a typical executives would argue with me well that's just not right well I only have so much time and if I really want to be focused on my team then I have to create time I can't attend every conference call. I can't go to every meeting because I have. And for me, as an atypical with neurodiverse conditions, it sometimes takes me longer to do certain things. So I need to create sometimes more time. That's right. Mm -hmm. To work with that. So I need to find ways to create time. And then my need to relax. My brain can't be going all the time. I need to take a break. And I can, I can say I never worked long hours in my whole career because I didn't work effectively that way. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Now, I don't count travel, but never. I just, I needed time. I needed to relax. And, you know, because everyone says, let's do a, have a think tank. Well, think tank. Well, I mean, it's the silliest thing ever. Because, I mean, you think about when you're mowing the lawns when the good idea comes to you. It's not when someone says, okay, we're going to think now. Yeah, <laughs> true enough. So I, I love, I love that you've said all this because I'm right there with you on it. When you think of, Let's go with your day, Tip, neuro atypical or atypical. How much time in the day do you think you could spend on deep focused work versus collaborative engaged up versus resting, recharging, refueling? Do you have a sense of how much, what your capacity was? Uh, on deep focus, very little. Mm. I want, because I, I, some, I, to me, to be in a group of two or three people that are creative in that and bounce ideas and go, that's when I get cooking. 
I can say, okay, because I've always been sort of the idea, the creative guy, here's where we're going, and then a laser focus on where we're going. Because then I mean, we'd have, have a meeting and say, okay, oh yeah, these are great ideas. Okay, can you have that done by Tuesday? And they're going, what are you talking about? We're just talking about it. But that was my, then my ability came to organize the team. Okay, we've got the idea. We've agreed on the idea. That's it. Mm-hmm. Don't come back next week and say, well, we could do this. or we No, we've decided. Here's the idea. We're yeah. focused. And that comes to my slogan that I always use is done is better than perfect. Mm-hmm. Just get it done. If we can execute execution i mean kill strategy i believe that's just execute if we can execute everything we're thinking of we will skyrocket and that's what i've always seen with my team just do what we know and do it well and do it fast and get it done we'll do all the bells and whistles later and that's all we seem to work and people can relate to that simple easy straightforward Mm, that clarity of vision people get behind it absolutely because it's easy yeah. And so you were very sensitive to knowing the ability, your your time ability to do focused work and you bounce off other people, work well in that two to three person. Tell me a little bit more. Maybe we'll end with this part of the conversation. Tell me a little bit more about what you observed you needed to rest, refuel, recharge. What did you need in your work in your work day? Well, it really very important to me. Like I said, I never worked long hours. But it was more the able to have fun at work. And when I mean fun at work, I don't ask. I mean, we did all the food trucks and the Christmas parties in the summer, all that sort of stuff. But it was really to have fun in the dialogue I had with people. I would walk around the office and I would talk to this person and talk to that person, which is helping me build relationships, was making them feel comfortable. But to me, that was that was happy time. Mm-hmm. That was nice to go around to sit down. To, I, I often took people out for lunch. Because I just wanted to get more of a sense of what was really going on in the company, what was really going on in their department mm-hmm. without them telling any secrets. But I could get a sense of that. I could read body language. So it was those type of activities that gave me a sense, allowed me to relax, allowed me to even refuel on their energy because now I know they're happy and they're happy. So now that makes me happier. I know I'm heading in the right direction. I'm feeling more confident and enthusiastic and and just mm-hmm. keep building and building on that. And so other people would say, you're just taking people out to lunch, but they don't see the value of everything in that for you, for the other person, for the trust building, the relationship building, all of it is in there. And it just looks like you're having a good time, Rick. Absolutely. You know, you said, I've heard that so many times. Why are you doing that? Why are you taking a low level person out to lunch? Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, and, and, and the thing was, it didn't come from a manual. It's what came natural to me. Again, I think going back to my atypicalness, my neurodiverse traits, the things that I've had to live in my life, I found great joy in that where I think a typical executive would say, are you kidding me? I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing you're seeing things differently, acting differently and had extraordinary results because of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I want to thank you for joining me. This was a fabulously interesting conversation. And I think you've shared some you've dropped some wisdom here for a leader who's thinking about, gosh, what do I do? What do I focus on? And it's really some fundamentals and maybe some different ways of doing things and maybe trusting an intuition about what human connection can investing in human connection can actually build for you as a leader. Yes. Actually, I must say, I very much enjoyed the conversation. It was great. Thank you. uh, 
I hope you all the best. And I hope, uh, yeah, that somebody learned something from our discussion. Yeah, I think so. There was a lot of gold right here. Thanks so much, Rick. Okay, thank you very much. Have a good day. You can find all of the Happy Space Podcast episodes over at happyspacepod.com. I love learning what resonates with you, so please leave a comment about this episode over social media, or even better, post a review wherever you tune in. And if you have an idea for a topic to explore or an inclusive action to celebrate, I would love to know more about it. It might even appear in an upcoming episode or an issue of the Happy Space newsletter. Please help me spread the word about people doing great things. After all, doesn't everyone deserve a happy space? Thank you.